I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 24. We're going to read a little passage in Exodus chapter 24. Um, we are about to the point in this series here of no return. I'd say we're kind of crossing that line this morning. So uh, what we're doing, if you are uh, visiting with us this morning, if you've not been here because of sickness or surgery or health, um, it, this is going to seem kind of strange. So we started uh, four weeks ago um, going through the Bible with the book of Genesis, okay? Now, there are 850 chapters between Genesis 1 and Daniel 1, and I told you that Daniel is the next book of the Bible that I want to preach through. I really like the book of Daniel, um, but I said, I think we need to get a little bit of some foundation under our feet here before we just dive into Daniel chapter 1. Now, when we get to Daniel chapter 1, I'm going to go right through the book of Daniel, chapter 1, chapter 2, and so forth, all the way through chapter 12. But to get the foundation under our feet here, we are doing a lot of review. And like I said, there's 850 chapters between Genesis and Daniel. And so we are trying to summarize in about a seven or eight week period of time 850 chapters of the Bible, which is a lot. It's probably more than the old saying of he's bit off more than he can chew is probably, probably fair. It's all right. It's probably fair. Um, but we are about to the point now where if I try to summarize at the beginning of every sermon, everything that we have covered in the previous sermons, it's going to be like a 35-minute summary and there's not, we're not going to make any progress. So I, I can't do that. So to help you... Uh, if you would like to catch up, so to speak, if uh, on our church website, uh, I will be updating just a, a real little PowerPoint presentation. It doesn't have any audio on the PowerPoint, so you're spared from my, my voice. But you can kind of click through and see the timeline of what we've covered and kind of catch up that way. And of course, all of our sermons are on the church website if you want to listen to those four sermons. Although Marty failed and didn't record the fourth one, which meant, well, I, he didn't fail, you know. I mean, if I lift you up at the beginning of the whole thing, I got to tear you back down. It's, no, he didn't fail. His computer failed, um, which he volunteers for this ministry of his own volition. And so uh, while I was coughing and hacking my way through the middle of this week, I had to get in front of a microphone at my at my desk at home and, and re-record that sermon. I can't tell you how many times I paused in the middle of that recording just to cough and, and get a breath. And I made sure to make Marty feel really guilty about that when I, when I talked to him later in the week. So I, I don't have time to summarize everything that we have covered so far. But what I'll tell you is we have seen a couple of key things. First, we've seen that from the beginning of the Bible, this whole story is not just a, a collection of random religious stories, but from the very beginning... We're told that God created and it was good. And his relationship with man and woman, were, man and woman was good. And then sin ruined it because of, a, an, of an enemy, uh, a fallen angel, an enemy of God, Satan, someone who wants to be like God himself, someone who wants to be worshipped. Um, and in the judgment, in the very beginning of the book, in Genesis chapter 3, the judgment of this enemy, God says, there is going to come a man from the offspring of the woman who will crush you, who will destroy you. That's his judgment to, to, this, to this enemy that takes the form of a serpent in the Genesis chapter 3 story of Adam and Eve. And the, so he says there, there will come a man from the offspring of, of, of this woman whom you have led into sin, 
You've, you've, you've deceived this woman and you've led her and her husband into rebellion against God. You have broken the fellowship that I have with them by leading them into sin. But there is coming a man from the offspring of this woman who will destroy you. And you will, you will bruise him. You will, you will bite at his heel. You will wound him. But he will utterly destroy you. And my contention from week one of this study is that in the very beginning of Genesis, that is, a, that is a word about Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, Jesus is the fulfillment of this man who will destroy uh, Satan, this enemy. And at the cross, Jesus is dying. And if you're looking at the cross, you're seeing a, a man crucified, suffocating. And you look at that and you think, man, Satan is winning. Satan is winning. Look at how he has wounded this Messiah sent from God. Look at how he has wounded this, this coming King, Jesus. Look at how he has, is he really go? I mean, I can see heaven watching, asking the question, is he really going to die? And at the cross, if you look at it, you see the wounding of Jesus. But at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the conquering of the grave, you see the, the total defeat of Satan because in Jesus' resurrection, you and I, who are also condemned sinners, have hope of resurrection with God as well. Because Jesus defeated the grave, we defeat the grave if by faith we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of theology behind that that I don't expect to make sense to someone hearing it for the first time. But that is, in essence, the story that begins in Genesis 3, the wounding of Jesus even in the destruction of of Satan, of God's enemy. And then, you, you know, you go through the Bible, and the Bible is a big book. I mean, this is a big book. There's a lot of chapters. There's a lot of paragraphs. And if you, you go, maybe, you, maybe you've been to some Sunday school classes, or maybe you've gone to some youth group things, or maybe you've just heard some stories from people, and you're like, wait a minute, I kind of know there's a story about David and Goliath in the Bible. Or I kind of know, I heard about Moses and, and the whole him telling Pharaoh, let my people go. But, but if, you're, if you're not, if you, if you don't know what's happening in the Bible, then all of these things just sound like random stories, like random religious stories. That's what they sound like, right? But that's not how the Bible's written. That's how it's taught sometimes. That's not how it's written. It, all of these stories fall into a timeline, a chronology of events. And if we start in Genesis at creation, we progress and, and we progress through these stories in a methodical way. And what God is doing is He is saying, look, this Savior, this man who I promised at the very beginning will come, He has a family. And this is the family of this man. This is the heritage of this man. And that's why we start off in the book of Genesis talking about um, Abraham. And we read about Abraham because God promises Abraham, look, the promise that I made to Adam and Eve that they were going to have uh, a son, there was going to be offspring from them who would set things right and redeem the world and, and destroy sin and death and deal with Satan. In you, Abraham, in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, now there are a lot of people on the earth at when Abraham lived. The earth is well populated at the time of Abraham, all across the globe. Okay, and God is saying, Abraham, you know, at the beginning, Adam and Eve, you know, you're going to have offspring. And now he's narrowed it down. It's going to be from this man's genealogy, from this man's family, from Abraham's family. And Abraham says, okay, and we went through a lot of stories about Abraham. There's a lot of amazing things that point to Jesus in the life of Abraham. He has a son, Isaac. 
Um, Isaac has a son, Jacob, and Jacob is renamed to a name that's very familiar to us. Jacob is given the name by God, Israel. Israel, which that's a nation, that's a people. We know who Israel is. Israel, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, it's all synonymous, Israel, Israel. So Abraham is told, you're going to be the, the, the family tree that I do this thing, that I bring about this man. And then we're given, you know, Isaac and Jacob, who's renamed Israel. Now, Israel has 12 sons. These become the 12 tribes of Israel because it's all Israel's family. It's 12 sons, 12 tribes. Those families become tribes. They migrate down to Egypt because of a famine. God provides for them in Egypt. And they're in Egypt for 400 years while they're... I mean, 400 years is a long time. I can't tell you my ancestors when I go back more than more than two or three people. That's it. I know my grandparents. I know my great-grandparents. And I've heard stories about my great-great-grandparents, but I don't know them. Um, I don't think my parents know, know them. And beyond that, we're all kind of blind and oblivious at this point in time. I don't know. And that's a period of what? 120 years, maybe? 150 years? We talk about 400 years that the Israelites spent in Egypt. That's a long time. If we took your family tree and we looked into the future 400 years, not only would none of those people probably have any idea who you are, but you would be astounded at how many people that's going to you know, amount to. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, and, and this is what was happening in Egypt. The children of Israel are multiplying over centuries of time. And they're, as they're you know, having children and more children and more children, they're becoming a competitive entity to the Egyptians themselves. And so 400 years later, you get a Pharaoh who's like, look, we have to do something about this. If we don't deal with the Israelites who've been living among us and multiplying for 400 years, they're not going to call this Egypt in the future. They're going to call this the Hebrew kingdom because they're outnumbering us now. They, they, he was dealing with a racial crisis in Egypt. And so, you know, they start to do what we've seen other countries, even in modern day, do. They start to limit childbirth. Well, you can only do this, and, and, and uh, I want you to, to, to make sure these children, he tells the people who are, give, who are uh, assisting in the child, you know, I want you to make sure these children don't live. Well, that's a tough thing to ask anybody to do. They don't, you know, to kill babies as they're being born. And they say, we're not going to do that. And so that's not very effective. And so then Pharaoh issues this genocidal command. Look, if they won't do it as I'm commanding, then we're just going to destroy all of the babies who are, you know, two years old and younger throughout the land of Egypt. We're just going to cleanse, pop, cleanse the population. That's what they're going to do of the Hebrew people. We're going to cleanse them. And I'm sure there were many mothers having children at that point in time who were doing their very best to save their, their sons from this ethnic cleansing that Pharaoh had ordered in Egypt. And we are told of one particular. And again, just like Abraham, we're, just like how we're told in Genesis about one particular guy, you know, during this ethnic cleansing in the book of Exodus, we're told about one particular guy. It doesn't mean he was the only guy. Some people, they read the book of Genesis and they're like, I just struggle to believe that God is only working in this one guy's life in all the ancient world. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that Abraham is the only ancient person that God ever did anything in his life. That's not what the Bible says. Why do we read about Abraham? Not because he's the only one God ever you know, had a relationship with. 
We read about Abraham because this is the family from whom the promise of Genesis chapter 3 of the man who will set things right, who will defeat Satan, this is the family from which he's going to come. And that's why we hear about it. Well, just like I, I hope there were lots of baby boys rescued in ancient Egypt, but we're told of one. Because through that one Moses, God, through a series of events, is going to bring his people out of Egypt. And you remember what God says when he finally sends an 80-year-old Moses back to Egypt. And he says, look, I want you to go, and I want you to tell Pharaoh that you're going to let my people go serve me in the wilderness. It's got to be in the wilderness. Let them go serve me in the wilderness. Pharaoh tries to barter with God. You ever try to barter with God? You ever try to trade back and forth with God? God, if you'll just do this, then I'll do this. God, if you'll just help me here, then I'll do this. Well, Pharaoh tries, and the Lord says, uh-uh, which is what he's going to say to you too, by the way. You don't have any negotiating power with God. And he says, God says, Moses, you tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son, and you have enslaved my firstborn son. And you let my firstborn son go free or I will kill your firstborn son. See, we look at the, the Moses bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. And we say, well, isn't this great? God is saving a nation of people. And he is. He is. He, he brought all the people out. That's true. He is. But from God's perspective, his eye is still on the promise made in Genesis 3. It's not merely saving a nation. It's about his son. This is about his son. And Pharaoh has done the most offensive thing that any man can do to a father. He has enslaved God's son. And he says to Pharaoh, you let him go or I will kill your son. And that's exactly what happens in the plagues. And the plagues, and again, this will be up on our website. If you want to see how the plagues correspond to the ancient gods of Egypt, put together a little presentation. You can look at it and see it for yourself. It's amazing. These are not random deities, by the way. The Egyptian gods, the Babylonian gods, the, all these gods overlap in their themes and in their worship and in their... You ever notice how um, all across the globe there are these ziggurat pyramid type figures where they worship these gods? You know, you think, well, it's kind of interesting that the Egyptians thought to build pyramids to worship their gods. But isn't kind of a coincidence that they would build the same pyramids in South America? I mean, that's the other side of the world. I'm pretty sure the ancient Egyptians weren't talking to the ancient South Americans. You know, why are they all building these pyramids? Because there are spiritual, there are real spiritual evil entities behind all of these polytheistic religions. It's all Tower of Babel stuff. That's why, I mean, the Babylonian gods become the Greek gods, become the Roman gods. I mean, there's, there's overlap everywhere in worship, too. And the worship, it's never holy. It's never pure. It's always evil, filled with sexual immorality and temple prostitutes, men and women being sexually exploited and as they worship these pagan gods, and it devolves into human sacrifice. It's all evil. Why? Because there's real evil behind this stuff. And so God judges the gods of Egypt one by one in the plagues, and then they get out, right? The people of Israel get out of Egypt, and we're all the way up to Exodus. And this is, a, this is an Israelite people who don't really know God. Maybe you're sitting wherever you're sitting this morning, you're saying, you know what? I don't really know God either. Israel did not really know God. They had spent 400 years in pagan Egypt. They didn't know God. 
They didn't know God. Um, and, the, and in the wilderness, they come to a mountain and they encounter the living God. And he is not like the gods of Egypt. They knew what the gods of Egypt were like. The big statues and the worshiping and the, the feasts and the festivals. They got that. But when they, when they go up to this mountain, they don't see a statue. They see a mountain as if it's on fire with thundering noise, with flashes of lightning surrounding the mountain. And a voice speaks to them from the mountain of God, thundering out the Ten Commandments. And what do you think the people do in response to that? <laughs> they look at Moses and they say, you go speak with God and we will stand a long way off. <laughs> which I think is perfectly reasonable. I mean, put yourself in that situation. Let's say you go out into your backyard uh, tonight, um, wherever you live, you know, and I, you, know, you walk out on your, on your back porch, and let's say in the distance you see a thundering mountain, lightning flashes, a huge visible display, and it starts to speak commands to you, how many of you are like, hey, you know what? Let's get real close and see what this thing is. No, you're going to like pull out your phone and check your Twitter account or Yahoo News and say, is anyone else seeing what I'm seeing right now? I mean, that's not, you're not going to just, let's go explore God. And that's what they say, you know? They're like, and see, now, it would be odd for you, but they had been led by this. They had seen the plagues of Egypt. So they had developed over the previous weeks some general respect for the power of God. And now this God, whom they have only heard from through Moses and Aaron to this point, is speaking directly to them. They're like, I don't think so. We're, uh, uh, Moses, you are doing a great job, buddy, going and talking to God. You just keep going and talk to him. We'll stay way far away and, and, and we'll listen to whatever you tell us to do. And so... Uh, Moses tells uh, the people, he, remember he gives them some, um, some uh, um, uh, oxymoronic advice. And, you, know, you know what an oxymoron is, where you say something that, that appears contradictory? This is what, this is what uh, Moses tells the people. He says, listen, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of God. God is only doing this to test you so that you'll be afraid of him. You're like, wait a minute, Moses, did you think about what you just said there? Don't be afraid of God. He's only putting on this display to test you so that you'll be afraid of him. But it may, what Moses is saying is, don't be afraid that God's going to destroy you. He didn't bring you here to, to wipe you out. God is putting on this display so that you will have a proper fear and respect and you will not disobey. You will not break his word. You'll not break his commandments. And he goes up in the mountain. He comes back with the commands of God. He tells the people the commands of God. And then we get to Exodus 24, verse 3. So Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the judgments. That must have been a pretty special thing. They, they, didn't, know, they didn't know jack about God. They didn't know nothing. Moses goes. He comes back. And he tells them everything. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Let me ask you, would you make that agreement with God? Would you make that agreement with God? Now for his part, God has promised them that if they will keep this law, this covenant, 
He will bless them beyond belief. Beyond anything the world has ever seen. So let me ask you a question. If God said, you know what? Here are my rules. Here are my laws. If you... Let me use my, my good nephew there as an example. Joshua, if you, if you will keep all these rules, I will make you the wealthiest person in the world. I'll make sure you never suffer sickness and death in your family. I will deal with all of your enemies for you. And you will live life in the lap of luxury, Joshua. All you have to do is keep all of these rules. How many of you would take a deal like that? Sounded good to the people in Israel. Sure, we will do all that the Lord has commanded us. And 40 days later, they are worshiping a golden cow. Um, some of you, uh, many of you, Christian people, you know, and uh, some of you may remember what it is like to make an initial profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a special time. I mean, You've, you've, you've probably heard the gospel a few times. You've probably heard what Jesus has done for you a few times. And when you make a profession of faith, what you're doing is you're raising your hand and you're saying, you know what, I hear this, I believe this. I want to be a Christian. I want to serve Jesus. And you make that profession of faith and um, you usually you come and you talk to a pastor and the next thing you're supposed to do is you're supposed to be baptized. If you didn't know that, when you make a profession of faith, when, you're, when you become a Christian, you're supposed to be baptized. Nothing magical happens in baptism, pointing up there because that's where we baptize people in our church. Nothing magical happens. Basically, you're buried in water and you're, you're, uh, you come up out of the water, hopefully. If not, then, um, you know, see you in heaven. But you uh, go into the water, you come up out of the water, and, uh, and what it is is it's a sign to demonstrate to the rest of the Christian people in the church congregation that, hey, I want you to treat me as a Christian now. I, I believe in Jesus Christ, right? So you get saved, you make a profession of faith, you get baptized. And then, you maybe the first couple of weeks go pretty well. I could use you as an example, Craig, but I won't. Uh, Craig was baptized recently. You know, maybe the first couple of weeks go pretty well. But you know what happens? You know what happens? You know what happens. Eventually, life gets long, and you got you made a profession of faith. You quote unquote got saved. You you decided to follow Jesus with your life, and then life starts to happen. You know. Um, your friends start to have some influence in some things. Um, you start to have a little bit of ambition. Maybe the sports season changes. I experienced that a lot in my life. Maybe you've experienced that too, you know. Maybe you make a profession of faith. Maybe you're a kid. You make a profession of faith in the summertime. You knew where I was going with this, right, Aaron? Right? You make a profession of faith in the summertime when you're not going to school every day. And then in the fall, school starts back up. And you realize... Wait a minute, this is not the coolest thing in the world to be a professing Christian trying not to sin uh, at, at school. Um, maybe you've had other experiences, but at some point you're going to realize I'm actually not very good at keeping all the commandments that the Lord has given me. Um, this is from Romans chapter 7, and this is Paul talking to us about the law, which is the, the Ten Commandments and the commands God gives. You don't have to turn there if, if you want, but I want you to understand what, what Paul is saying here. In Romans 7, let me pick a good verse to read here. Um, he says, uh, let's start in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? 
is the law bad? Is, is God's law for us a bad thing? He's saying, certainly not. On the contrary, he's saying, I would not have known my sin except from the law. In other words, without God saying, this is right and this is wrong, I would not have realized how sinful, sin means to fall short of God's glory. I would not have known truly how sinful I was apart from the law. He's, and he gives an example. He says, for I would not have known covetousness. Covetousness is when you want something that someone else has. You, you want something for yourself that you don't have. It's the opposite of content, contentedness. We're very familiar with covetousness. Uh, we have a whole market economy that thrives on wanting what we don't have. Um, covetousness is not good. It's not spiritually healthy. Contentedness is from the Lord. Covetousness is from your own screwed up heart. He's saying, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. He's saying, I would not have even realized that was wrong unless the law had said you shall not covet. And he says, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. And I won't get into that. I have controversial thoughts about verses 9, so I, let's not cross that bridge today. Tim will corner me after the service. I don't want a Romans speech from Tim from Tim after the service. Maybe if I'm brave enough to preach through Romans someday. But if you look at verse 11, we can agree on verse 11 here. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. God is doing something significant in the Old Testament. Now, let me see if I can explain this in the simplest of terms. He is giving the law to Israel, and He's making them unbelievable promises of wealth and health and success if they will just keep the law. And by the way, it, there's not a billion things in there. It's very simple. It's called the Ten Commandments for a reason. It's very basic. And, and he's showing Israel, no matter what incentive you have to keep all of God's command, no matter how good the incentive is, no matter how much effort you put into it, you are incapable of being holy and righteous before God. You are incapable of being holy and righteous before God. So you say, oh, well, I would honor God. I would do the right thing if it was just worth my while. You know, if, if somebody told me I could have, you know, $50 million for doing that, I would do it, not with God. You might try and you would fail. We are sinners. And this is what Paul is saying. The law shows us we are sinners. And the whole Exodus story is showing us for the first time in God's word what it is going to take to have a relationship with a righteous God. And you know what it takes? This is what it takes. As Israel sins and breaks their promise with God, God forgives them. As Israel sins again and breaks their promise with God, God forgives them. As Israel sins and breaks their promise with ten times we're told, and as they sin, God takes them back and God takes them back. And God takes them back. And God takes them back. 
God tells them, I am taking you to a land that is better than any land you've ever lived in, and I will deal with all of your enemies for you. I will just give it to you. And they get to the border of this land. Think, they've been waiting to get to this land for two years, and they get to the border of this land, and he says, go in, it's yours. And they say, well, the people there are really big. The cities are very well fortified. I don't think we can do it. I mean, think about that. They have watched God miraculously destroy the Egyptian empire. They didn't get out of Egypt because they won a military victory with the Egyptians. But they get to the Jordan River and they look at Jericho and they say, "Mm, we can't go in there. That's too big for God. That's too big for God. What's worse is they say, that's too big for God. If we go in there, we're going to die. Who wants to lead the caravan back to Egypt so we can go be slaves there again? And you say, man, those Israelites were fools, right? Yeah, so are we. So are we. And so God has them in the wilderness until an entire generation of people pass away, 40 years. And 40 years in the wilderness, He is showing us His faithfulness to Israel, even though Israel has tried to leave him over and over again from the very beginning. They try to leave him with a golden calf. They try to leave him with multiple rebellions against Moses, multiple times saying, can we go back to Egypt? Can we go back to Egypt? Can we go back to Egypt? And he gets them all the way through the desert to the edge of the promised land. And as they look into the land that God has said, I will give you, having already demonstrated all of his power, having already proven he can do this, they look at him one more time and say, we don't want Moses or his God. We want to go back to Egypt. By the grace of God, that would be every person here who's ever made a commitment to him. But for the grace of God, that would be every one of us. The work of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life. See, when you give your life to Jesus, it's not dependent. Your faithfulness is not dependent on your own willpower. That's where people mess this up. They think, I make a profession of faith. I believe in Jesus. I'm forgiven of my sins. I want to serve Jesus with my life. And then they think, okay, now I have to do this by my own willpower. And as long as I am strong enough not to sin against God, then my relationship with the Lord is real and everything will be okay. That's that's a fool's errand. That's a fool's errand. If my relationship with God, now listen to me, this is my testimony. If my relationship to Jesus Christ depended on my personal willpower and faithfulness, I would not be a Christian. I sin all the time. To my shame. I'm constantly confessing, apologizing to my wife, to my children. I coach the basketball team. I, I apologize to my basketball team at least twice. Guys, sorry about practice yesterday. You know, you guys might have been wrong, but I was wrong too. I'm sorry. I, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't have behaved that way. I am a failed, righteous person. <laughs> If my salvation depended on my willpower and my strength, there is no hope for me. But in Christ, we have what Israel lacked. We have a one-sided covenant that Jesus has already signed in blood at the cross. Because of what Jesus has done, I have constant, eternal, lasting forgiveness in my life. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, 
I, I want you to understand, we, when we read these stories of failure in the Old Testament, we are reading a people discovering their own sinfulness. We are reading about a people realizing their incapability of keeping fellowship with God. That's why there's this whole priestly sacrificial system. That's why they keep returning to Moses. Constantly in the wilderness, they are offending God, right? Often rejecting Moses and saying, we're going back to Egypt. We hate this life. And God brings judgment upon them. And what do they do? They run to Moses. Moses, please go to God and make it right again. Save us, Moses. Save us, Moses. Save us, Moses. They are realizing, no matter how good the reward, they are incapable of being faithful to God. Do you know that about yourself? You can't be a Christian unless you know that about yourself. You are a sinful person. I am a sinful person. Praise God. And this is Paul's conclusion in Romans 7. That passage I was reading about how tough the law is. That's the famous passage where he says, Look, the things that are wrong that I know I shouldn't do, those are the things I find myself doing. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to that? Just around the sanctuary this morning. Tell me you're with me here. The things I know I shouldn't do, those are the things that I find myself doing. And that's frustrating, isn't it? It's shameful. I w Paul knew what that was like. That is the Christian faith. And then he says, and the things that I know I should do, those are the things that I find myself neglecting and not doing. And he says, O wretched man that I am. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the leader of the early church. Oh, wretched man that I am. If Paul is a wretched man, I'm sorry, I, I'm not going to have a lot of luck in the self-righteousness category. But he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? Because that's what sin leads to, death. Not just death that we all will experience, but eternal condemnation. He's saying, who can save me? And he says, praise God, Jesus Christ. Now, it, uh, wherever you're sitting this morning, I want you to understand, Christianity is not a religion of rule keeping. There are lots of religions in the world about rule keeping. Islam, Buddhism, karma, the positive and negative. If you do something bad, something bad will come back to you. If you do something good, something good will come. Uh, Judaism. There are a lot of rule-keeping religions in the world. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a faith where God has given us commands knowing full well that we cannot keep them all. Well, why would God do that? Because He's pointing us to a Savior who has given His life to forgive us of all of our transgressions. And if you don't realize that you can't keep the rules of God, then you will not look for a Savior. But if you're sitting there today knowing, I know that I cannot be as good as I should be, then friend, I would point you to a Savior who offers you forgiveness, not on the back of your own good works, but who offers you forgiveness by standing in your place to receive the judgment of sin from God Himself. And if you know, I can't be a part of a rule-keeping religion. I'm not a good enough person to be a part of a rule-keeping religion. Pastor, Reggie, I do bad things. 
If you know that about yourself, you are halfway home. My goal is not to get you to keep rules. I want you to see the one who died on the cross to forgive you of all of your transgressions. When you become a Christian, you're not going to magically learn how to keep every rule. But you're going to know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I told you in the wilderness, the people keep going back to Moses as they discover their own sinfulness. Moses, make things right with God. Moses, make things right with God. Moses, make things right with God. Here's Deuteronomy 18. Moses is getting ready to die. Getting ready to die. Last 40 years, think about Moses' life. First 40 years in Egypt. Next 40 years out in the desert. At least a good portion of it shepherding. Last 40 years, back in the desert with Israel. That's Moses' life. 120 years. What a way to spend a life. Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. Talking to the people of Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Listen, guys, I'm getting ready to die. You've spent these last 40 years running to me every time you were faced with God's judgment. And I would go to God and he would forgive you. I'm getting ready to die. But God will give you a prophet like me. He will give you a prophet like me. Him you will hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of assembly. Listen to me. When he says, according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, He's talking about the day when they first encountered the mighty God of Israel. He's saying, there will come a prophet like me who will speak to you as God spoke to you on that mountain. Who you will look to as you look to me to go stand between you and God on that mountain. Remember, guys, this is when you said, middle of verse 16, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see the great fire anymore lest I die. You guys remember that day is what he's saying? That's the day I'm talking about. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Folks, this is another one of those Genesis chapter 49 moments. He is talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. The New Testament identifies Jesus as this prophet who is like Moses. Who will speak to God's people as God spoke to them on the mountain when they first encountered him in the wilderness. Who people will either listen to and hear or else God will require their life. That's what this goes on to say. I will require it of him. That's life and death language. What does Jesus tell us? 
that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. That one day, everyone will stand before Jesus. That's what he says. Everyone will stand before me and give an account for your life, and I will either let you into heaven or I will not. That many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we do this in your name? And I will look to them and I will say, depart from me, you workers of sin. I never knew you. I didn't know you. What does that mean? The way to get into heaven is to not do any sin? No, no, no. The way to get into heaven is to know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Some people think I'm going to stand before God someday, whoever he is, and he's going to look at my life and he's going to say, well, here are the good things that you did and here are the bad things that you did. But, you know, you were a good husband or you were a good wife or you were a good son or you were a good daughter. You took care of your parents when they were old. You volunteered and you helped out at you know, the food bank or in the local school. You really stepped up in that one kid's life when he needed somebody. You know, you did a lot of really admirable things. And by the way, all those things are admirable. I'm not bad-mouthing any of that. But people think that God is going to say, so really it doesn't matter all the bad things you did. You did enough good things to overcome bad things. So whatever heaven is, Come on in. The door's wide open. If that's your fairy tale of what it's going to be to meet the living God, then you are ignoring Jesus. Because if all it took to get into heaven is to do some good things, then why is God's Son up on the cross? Why is Jesus giving His life to take the judgment of sinners if all it takes is taking in an orphan or being a good husband or wife or mom or dad. If that's all it takes, then Jesus can come down off the cross. You don't need to be up there, Lord. We'll just go adopt some kids. We'll just go take care of some people in need. But you're going to have a real problem when you die and you stand before a resurrected Lord Jesus saying, yeah, I heard about you. I remember there was once a guy who was really kind of passionately telling me about you. But I thought I could just do things my own way. Israel is learning in the wilderness. They cannot do things their own way. And at the end of Moses' life, he is reminding them, there is coming a Savior. There is coming a man of God. There is coming a king. You know what happens? In the opening chapters of the next book, Joshua meets him. Joshua meets him. Can you imagine being Joshua, Moses' successor? Here are the people that failed for the last 40 years, and now I'm supposed to take them into the promised land, and we're going to win? Must have been pretty nerve-wracking for old Joshua, and he was old at that point in time, thinking, how is this going to work? He goes over the Jordan, and he has a burning bush-like experience. Joshua does. 
He looks up at Jericho, and by the way, they've done all the archaeological work on Jericho. You can look up on the internet the walls that have fallen down and the layer upon layer of them, and you can see the right dating and timing of the whole uh, conflict in the, of Jericho. And he looks at Jericho, this first fortified city in the Promised Land, and he says, okay, what are we going to do here? And he's going off by himself at night. You ever go for a walk at night? People who walk at night are trying to figure something out. That's what's happening. You go, you ever tell your husband or your wife, look, I'm just going to step outside for a minute. You know, yeah, it's not to look at the stars usually. I mean, Joshua is on a walk at night and he's trying to figure out how is this going to work. And he turns and he sees an armed man. And he says, wait, whose side are you on? That's literally what he asks. You know, are you, <laughs> you know, are you with Israel or are you with Jericho? Whose side are you on? And the armed man says, uh, I'm on the side of the Lord. I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. And it says Joshua falls down and worships him. And he says, take off your sandals for the ground where you stand is holy. Um, there's so much that we're just summarizing here in these stories. But if you're here this morning, I want you to know this. A, you are a sinner. Me too. B, there is a Savior that you can believe in who provide purpose and meaning and forgiveness and redemption in your life and who doesn't require you to be perfect, who speaks to you as you are as a sinner and says, come to me, come follow me. And three, you need to commit your life to the Savior. You need to get up and leave your chair, your seat, from wherever you're sitting as soon as we finish with the service. Um, you know, Jeff and Christina are going to work their way through one more a cappella song, you know, be praying for them as they carry that load. And then you need to come up to the front where I'll be standing and you need to say, hey, pastor, I don't know much about this, but I know that I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus. I want to follow him. That's the one, two, three I want to leave you with today. Now let me pray for you as you wrestle with that. Father, when you were explaining salvation to Nicodemus through your son Jesus, you said, the wind blows wherever the wind wills. I have no idea through this low-energy, slow-paced sermon that I have preached in my own weakness just trying not to cough and choke through people sniffling and dealing with distractions and, and, and themselves I know people are hurting and suffering where they are today, both with physical realities and with spiritual difficulties themselves. Who knows where your spirit will blow into someone's life and make an eternal difference. And so we preach in faith and we pray in faith. And we ask, Father, that you will save sinners from hell. Give them the strength and the courage to speak their questions. People here who do not know you today, let them levy their greatest concerns to pastoral ears after the service. But Father, I ask you as a son, do not let people walk out of the sanctuary this morning without knowing Jesus. Commit this to your work.
見えないんだなって。